Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, NASI is now recommending that the provinces pause the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine for anybody 55 and younger because of concerns of blood clots. We'll talk about that. COVID-19 has also led to global shutdowns that have rattled economies, communities, families, and will affect children for years to come. How critical is the investment in early childhood education after COVID? An expert will join us to talk about that. And the Ontario government has offered $200 million in the recovery plan that's aimed at the tourism and hospitality sector. Chris Bloor is the vice president of the tourism industry of Association of Ontario. He joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. AstraZeneca in the news again. Some would suggest for all the wrong reasons. Ontario's top doc says the province will pause the use of AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine for anybody 55 and younger because of concerns about blood clots. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. While there is a very rare incident, we want to make sure we're fully appraised on this. Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization is now recommending the move, citing concerns over reports of blood clots. As you've heard, rare cases of serious blood clots have been recently reported in Europe following the use of AstraZeneca vaccine in that population. Now, Health Canada is demanding AstraZeneca do a detailed study on the risks and benefits across multiple Canadian age groups. To date, no cases of these events have been reported in Canada. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Uh, by the way, just as a, an added story, this is the day apparently that the U.S. vaccines, the 1.5 billion vaccines of AstraZeneca, are arriving from the United States. Uh, but there seems to be some trepidation. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Bradley Waters, who's a senior scientist and executive vice president of science and research at Princess Margaret uh, Center Cancer Center. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could be with us again this morning. Good morning, Bill. There seems to be some trepidation here, and I'm seeing some comments on social media that say, well, I'm not so sure now. Is it warranted? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different people weighing in here, and I think it, it's important to, you know, to understand a little bit around the regulatory environment in Canada. Uh, Health Canada is the organization that approves new medicines and new vaccines, and they have uh, looked at the data and said that the vaccine is safe for use in Canada. Uh, the same kinds of organizations in Europe, the European Medical Agency and, and, and in the UK, have also done this as well. Uh, the European Medical Agency was the first one to actually put a pause on the AstraZeneca based on the emergence of, of these very rare and, and uh, unusual forms of blood clots in, in certain individuals. Um, they looked at the data um, and, and deemed the vaccine you know, safe to continue to use. Uh, in Canada, uh, what happened yesterday is that our National Advisory Committee on Immunization, this is an independent body from Health Canada, um, and they advise on the use of available vaccines. And my interpretation of what they've done is, is really around uh, being cautious for the moment. Um, they're saying, you know, given the fact that we do have other vaccines available in Canada, that can be given to individuals. Their recommendation is to pause on those under 55 and um, allow sort of a, a deeper investigation of the data um, uh, and use uh, the available vaccines that we have, uh, the, the RNA vaccines on that population. 
I, I guess maybe, Doctor, one of the reasons there might be some consternation here is, is we're kind of getting mixed messages uh, about this. I, as you mentioned, uh, even from the European models, when we started hearing about some of these possible side effects, uh, their initial reaction was, okay, nobody over uh, 65 is going to get this. Uh, and now it's under 55. And as a matter of fact, they come back and said, you know what, actually, plus 55, this actually is a very good vaccine for them. Uh, I know this is this is a new virus, this is a new vaccine, uh, but, but, you know, when you get contrary messages like this i think it it, it it confuses people well no doubt it confuses everyone and the messaging on on this has been poor you know and i it's 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 frustrating for you know leading scientists and doctors to keep track of of all the information much less the general public and you know the the initial advice on this vaccine was to uh, around the 65-year-olds and older was to not give it to that group. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't based on a safety signal or anything. It was just based on that we didn't have a lot of data on how well it worked in that group. Um, there's now lots of real-world evidence. The UK has been using this in millions of people since December. Uh, we know it works in that group. And so it's a, it's a good vaccine. Um, there's been new Phase three clinical trial data that came out last week in the U.S., again, demonstrating... Um, high level of efficacy of this vaccine and it's an important contributor to you know our our war on on the virus so um you know i think there's uh, uh a lot of uh confusion around this and i and i think you know we we hear different things from from health canada from nasi from from people on with opinions on on twitter and, and everywhere else so um, you know, I think Canada does need to think about how to do a better job on messaging this to ordinary Canadians. I mean, from my standpoint, I'm in that plus 55 cohort, by the way, and I'm ready, willing, and able to roll up my sleeve as soon as they give me the call. I mean, I'm not concerned too much about this, but because the other element to this that I think we have to add to this discussion, Doctor, is there's risk in anything we do from a medical standpoint, whether it's surgery, whether it's a prescription we're taking, any or vaccines, anything like this. There's always that possibility, isn't there? That's right. You know, and it's it's understanding risk in general. There's risk in everything we do in life, and um, you know, the, the, the risk here is low. It's, uh, it was estimated, you know, initially in Europe to be somewhere on the order of um, four cases per million uh, people, which is very, very low. That's about the same risk of, uh, um, you know, dying in a motorcycle accident after driving six miles on a motorbike, uh, to put it in some perspective. Um, but it could be somewhat higher than that, and I think, you know, the, the pause is going to allow a bit of an investigation into that, but, but it's rare. Um, and what's kind of unusual is that it's been seen uh, primarily in women and primarily in younger people, those under the age of 50 or under, under the age of 55, and that's really what's led to this um, uh, recommendation by NASI to say, you know, let's pause it on this uh, under 55 population. There's no evidence of anyone over that, that that's uh, that's developing these blood clots and i hope you know that canada will find a way to use this vaccine effectively in you know the older population so that we can still get as many people a vaccine as, as fast as possible this is really what we need to be worried about right now the the risk of the third wave is you know orders of magnitude uh, more problematic than than the safety on, on these vaccines 
and again, that cohort they're talking about, that 55 plus, is, is, is a large segment of this population. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously the people, that, the, the plus 75s, et cetera, are being looked after right now, uh, but there's a, a large number within that group that are looking for some aid here. And it's worth noting, I think, as well, I think there's about 300,000 vaccines of AstraZeneca have been uh, handed out here in Canada, uh, and no reported uh, cases of, of these sorts of side effects either. So uh, how long will it take for them to make this determination? I guess we've got just a couple of seconds left here. Uh, it, we expect some word on this that it's okay uh, a month from now, but it, or is it simply going to stay as a 55-plus uh, option? Yeah, I think we'll have to wait and see on that. I, you know, the, we'll, the data will, will continue to come out and, uh, and, and that uh, recommendation may be revised. But as you said, there's a, a huge number of people in Canada that can go get this vaccine now. It's going to be available in pharmacies. It may end up in your with your primary caregiver. So it should be pretty easy to get to uh, for that population. And, uh, you know, I think what I'm hoping is just that we, as many people as possible have an opportunity to get that, that vaccine shot and protect themselves. Doctor, I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for taking some time for us this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Brad Waters, of course, uh, from Princess Margaret Cancer Center, uh, trying to get some clarity on what's going on with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, and he did mention about the possibility of a third wave. And, and in some areas, that's a reality. In others, uh, it's this big, dark cloud that seems to be hanging on the horizon and maybe moving a little bit closer than people want to see. Uh, and to that end, of course, uh, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health in London, Middlesex, uh, Dr. Christopher Mackey, uh, has asked now that, uh, that London, Middlesex be moved into the red zone uh, we're, of course, in lockdown in Hamilton, but the red zone in London. Uh, so what's going on here? I want to bring Jonathan Shearer into the conversation. Jonathan is a health journalist and investigative reporter. Uh, great to have you on the program, Jonathan. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thanks for uh, having me, Bill. I, on a daily basis, almost on an hourly basis now, I'm, I, I can go online and find some new article that says, you know what, we're not paying attention anymore, guys. You're letting your guard down, uh, whether you've had the vaccine or not. And we've seen rising cases in London, Middlesex. Uh, Hamilton's back in lockdown. Uh, the GTA is kind of concerned about this. Uh, are, are we getting sloppy and lazy? Well, uh, certainly in London, skyrocketing uh, in, in the past week. Um, and, and that's why, as of uh, this morning, uh, it was moved from orange to red. Um, I think there's lots of different reasons why we're seeing a spike. Uh, part of it is, is people, uh, uh, some people being lax uh, about taking safeguards. Part of it is the rise of variants of concern. Uh, and part of it was, frankly, decisions made uh, in early February uh, to uh, start to reopen up. Uh, including schools. London Middlesex actually opened up its reopened their schools a week before much of the province at the push of the local medical officer of health. Um, and uh, it, it's gotten so bad in London and region that the uh, it, it's spreading at a rate uh, that is higher than most places in Ontario that were already designated gray or red. The number I saw here, and it's frightening, Jonathan, is from March 22nd to 28th, in other words, a space of about one week, uh, an 86% increase in, in new cases. That, I mean, that's that's frightening. It is. In context, uh, of the 21 regions in the province that were already in a higher uh, um, uh, protection zone, gray or red, uh, 20 of them uh, grew at a less rapid rate. Than London, there was only one other place in the whole province that grew faster than London did. 
So the move from orange to red uh, is is obviously a transitional thing. I mean, that's the way the color code system works. Uh, some have suggested maybe they should just leapfrog this and go right into gray and lockdown mode to try to, to curtail this. Is, is that too drastic a measure? I don't think so, personally. Um, I, I, I think that in order to um, beat the curve, you have to get ahead of it, right? Because what, what we're seeing now, the numbers that we see today reflect actually what was happening in the region a couple of weeks ago, because it takes a week or two uh, for people who start to get sick uh, to seek out and get a test, to get those test results back. Uh, so we're seeing things as they existed a week or two ago. And um, it, it, it's like going down a steep hill. You can't wait till you get to the bottom to hit the brakes, right? You have to anticipate. Um, and so the move to red is a reaction to the numbers we're seeing in this past week. But yes, there are certainly uh, uh, people in London who would prefer to see us move uh, more directly to, to gray restrictions. The first thing that some people do every time they see a university town in London, of course, with the, the, one of the best universities in the world, of course, uh, with Western University, and say, aha, it's those, it's those, it's those university students. They're the ones that do it. But the, the only two new cases uh, from uh, the campus anyway, uh, where's the spread coming from? Is it, is it downtown? Um, I, I don't think we have a, a geographic breakdown uh, uh, to that granular level to, 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 to point to neighborhoods. Uh, at least that hasn't been shared uh, publicly. But um, it's across the board. Uh, we're seeing outbreaks in, in, in younger groups, uh, uh, but certainly not just university uh, age population. We're seeing it in kids uh, under 20. Uh, we're seeing it uh, at adults uh, kind of across the board. Um, and because there are variants involved, uh, we're seeing more of a presence of more serious cases in younger people than we did in the first two waves of the pandemic. Um, and I guess the only kind of silver lining to all this is that because those in long-term care and retirement homes receive vaccinations first, while we're still seeing cases there, um, we're not seeing the sort of hospitalization rates and deaths that we saw in the first two waves. Uh, the cynic in me would say not yet. Uh, when I see that statistic that said that this variant, uh, there's a 60% greater chance of hospitalization. And and this has become, as one doctor said the other day, a, a younger people's variance. I mean, you know, as you say, we've protected a lot of the seniors and more vulnerable, although they've really dropped the ball here when it comes to, to people with cancer and, and autoimmune diseases. They haven't done anything for them, and that bothers me. But but it's for the people that were of that age group, like you know, 35 and under, that thought, well, I'm bulletproof. This is really just old people in wave one and wave two. Uh, they've got a wake-up call right now because it's, it seems to be targeting them right now because they seem to be the most vulnerable. I, I think so. I mean, and, and to what extent it actually wakes up the people who need to be woken up remains to be seen. Uh, but sure, certainly variants have shifted the demographic uh, impact of, of this virus. Uh, and, and young people need to be vigilant, not only for their elderly relatives, uh, but for themselves. 
Well, we'll track this and uh, see what kind of a reaction we're going to get. And, of course, we've got the, the break coming up anyway with Easter weekend, and people are going to be out and about, uh, we guess, because the weather's supposed to be nicer this weekend. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they're going to get a handle on this. Jonathan, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your perspective on this today. Thank you so much, Bill. Glad to be on. Take care. Jonathan Shear, of course, health journalist and, and investigative reporter uh, with London Middlesex moving from orange into red. And there's still a great deal of concern about the vaccine rollout and the way that the province and, and frankly, the national program is, too. And I, I've made this point again about, about autoimmune diseases and people that are, are, are dealing with cancer right now. Uh, a note here from Alexis uh, that says, uh, why has Mr. Ford forgotten about the severe autoimmune diseases, especially those required to take immunosuppressant drugs to stay alive? By definition, these people have have no immune system and are most at risk should they contact COVID-19. These people should have been at the top of the list for vaccinations, yet they still have not been given the green light. This is unconscionable, and I can only think it might be because this group doesn't vote en masse for conservatives as seniors do. Premier needs to do the right thing. It's well past time, but it's not too late. Alexa, thank you so much. Great to get uh, those kind of emails and that kind of feedback, and hopefully our MPPs are listening to this as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What about investments in our children, our future? Uh, a couple of months ago, we had a discussion with Dr. Martha Fulford here on the program. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at uh, Children's Hospital at McMaster University. And uh, she talked about the importance of investing in education in schools and the difference that it could make. The investment in education will pay off long-term for the economy. And if people are, you know, and I'm not an economist, this isn't my area of expertise, but we know that education is one of the single most uh, important markers for upward mobility, for graduation from high school, for, for post-secondary education, for successful, you know, jobs, business development. Our kids are our future, and it is not a waste of money to invest in our kids. Not at all. There have been quite a few people that have done extensive research on this, one of them being uh, Dr. David Philpott, uh, who has been a, pr- a guest on the program in, in the past. And uh, Dr. Philpott actually made a submission to uh, The Conversation uh, yesterday. It was posted on the webpage, uh, theconversation.com. Uh, it's called Generation C, Why Investing in Early Childhood is Critical After COVID-19. And Dr. David Philpott joins us to talk about this. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Bill. As, as we get so wrapped up, you know, in, in economic recoveries and, and a number of different things, and, of course, the medical aspects to, to dealing with the pandemic, uh, I, I'm concerned, and I know a, a number of people, including yourself and your colleagues, are concerned, uh, that we're not focusing on, on the impact this is having on children. And, and as to, uh, you know, the, the concerns that was raised uh, by, uh, uh, by uh, Dr. Fulford just a couple of seconds ago from McMaster, uh, you know, the obvious question is, well, where do you start that? Where do you begin that investment in children? And, and your piece today, I think, is very poignant. Uh, it, it starts with childcare and it, it moves right on up, doesn't it, at a very young age? Well, yes, because learning starts at childcare. Learning begins in those first early years of life. We know that 80% of a child's brain develops before they're six. It is the richest period of neural development, an explosion of growth in their development. And if we look at the impact of the pandemic now, this is the second year and we're probably going into a third year. For those kids, zero to age five, that's 40% of optimal neural development. They've missed two out of five years, uh, and the impact of that is going to be significant. 
Well, let's talk about the, the positives of why this is done. And, and, and I, I guess part of the frustration here, Doctor, is that in Canada, we're kind of playing catch-up on this. I mean, governments sort of understand this, and they say, yeah, but, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of down the pecking order here. You know, we've got other things that we need to pay more attention to. Other jurisdictions understand the, the gravity of the situation and have invested heavily in early childhood education. Uh, and we've seen the results of that already. Uh, are we getting the message here in North America? Well, I think, you know, we know the research is, is crystal clear in identifying that all children will benefit from quality early child education. COVID has amplified the evidence for that. And if anything good has come from this, and that's a stretch to even say, use that phrase, it's that, you know, COVID has, has um, unmasked the, the patchwork of, of uh, Patchwork quilt of early child education that we have in this, how fragmented and fractured the system is and how vulnerable it was. We have been allowed the luxury to ignore this for years and years, despite the evidence. But the pandemic has really underscored that without access to quality early learning, the economy stops and it's really difficult to reactivate it. And we're not just talking about, well, they're our future. We want to talk about them and the impact they're going to have right here in the present. And, and have you seen uh, indications of that already? Because, as you say, we're heading into year two of, of this pandemic, uh, and, and it has had an impact. We've talked about mental health issues with adults and, and with high school students. Uh, the, the kids' helpline, of course, I think it's got five times the number of calls they used to have. But for, for the people that are preschool, as you say, you know, six, seven years old and younger than that, uh, they don't articulate that. But, I mean, the numbers indicate that, uh, and you've, you've set some benchmarks here about things like, uh, like uh, you know, uh, the progress that children are supposed to make here, you know, with social aspects and, and of course, educational aspects. Are they falling behind now because of what's gone on over the last 12 months? Well, this pandemic, COVID, adults are paying the price for the severity of this illness. But children are paying the price for the severity of the isolation that comes because of this illness. UNICEF Canada is raising alarm. They're identifying that children have been locked out of classrooms, time with friends, away from teachers, physical activity, health care, play and security. And they're locked into detention, custody, isolation and fear. The resultant stress that's going to come from that, the trauma that these kids are, uh, have experienced, you know, uh, you know across Every marker of human development, we see progress regressing because of this uh, pandemic. And and we've seen the negative consequences of this. I mean, we have to understand, and this may not be something that resonates with a lot of people, but I think the, the statistics in this indicate that this is the case. School and that school environment for many of those students is a safe harbor. Uh, it's where they actually get the nutritious meal. It's actually where uh, they develop those social skills, not just the learning aspects of this, but the social aspects of this as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, we know that the biggest gains from quality early child education is uh, boost in literacy and numeracy, boost in language development, boost in behavior and self-regulation, social regulation, uh, especially for children from low socioeconomic status homes. Uh, and we also know that the big 60% of children in special education are there because of lags in those same areas, lagging literacy, numeracy, lagging language development and struggles with behavior and social regulation, again, especially for children from low SES. So, you know, we have a study out of the UK that shows that quality ECE can reduce spec ed enrollment by 40 to 55 percent. 
We have a study out of Ontario showing that without two years early child education, children are three times more likely to need help in behavioral regulation, one and a half times more likely to need help in language, and twice as likely to need help with reading. So the evidence is very clear about what happens when children don't have this optimal development time. That kind of reminds us, I guess, of that old cliche, doesn't it, Doctor? You can pay me now or you can pay me later. Uh, if we don't invest in it now, we have to get, we're going to have to pay for it later on as those children grow up uh, with those difficulties. And, of course, that's only going to be exacerbated the older that they get. Uh, and the resources needed to be able to help them at that age are, are going to be significantly more. Well, yes, you're exactly right, Phil. We know that, you know, for every dollar we invest in early child education, we get back, we immediately get back somewhere between $1.75 and $3, depending on how you measure quality and how long you track these kids. The financial return um, grows quickly when we track them across their lifespan, where there's a, they have a higher rate of completing high school education and com- continuing on the post-secondary, they have higher incomes, they have higher tax bases, and they have uh, less of a draw on social programs. So the evidence is there that we, we get back both, you know, in the short term and we get back big time in the long term if we invest more proactively. I know words matter, and, and maybe we should spend a couple of seconds talking about that as well, Doctor, because an awful lot of times when this discussion comes up, uh, elected officials, uh, people that want to weigh in on this, uh, oftentimes simply refer to this as daycare, i.e. babysitting. Uh, and that's that's not what this is a discussion is about. This is about a more holistic approach. This is about early childhood education, which starts in a school environment. Well, this is about education across the lifespan. The, the, what happens in those first five years of life sets the trajectory for the rest of these children's lives. Uh, so investing you know, in, those, in those years optimizes the outcome for the rest of their lives. It, it's the investment that keeps on giving. And elected officials, I think, you know, I tend to be optimistic. Elected officials are getting this. I'm comforted by Krista Friedland's task force on women and the economy, which has to tackle why women are paying such a disproportionate price for the economic fallout of this uh, this uh, pandemic. You know, women's employment has fallen to its lowest point in 30 years. That task force has to call for a quality child care program in this country that's universal in access, that's monitored by government for quality, has trained educators, and it's delivered in play-based curriculum. Uh, it also has to guide the bilateral agreements uh, between the federal and provincial governments, which expire this month month, which provides an opportunity to invest in infrastructure and link the early years with the K-12 system. And finally, that task force has the added job of informing the upcoming federal budget to make a lasting investment in ECE and give this country what's desperately needed, you know, a, 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 an effective universal child care program. And I know governments have danced around this issue. I mean, the provincial budget that we just talked about last week made some mention of this. But and again, we're getting into methodologies here, which I find problematic. You know, they're giving tax credits and breaks to people to pay for this. What we need is space. We need to be able to accommodate children in situations like this. I mean, a tax credit doesn't do anybody any good if there's no place for the child to go and to be able to be in this learning environment. Plus, I would imagine, Doctor, part of that investment also has to be in quality people to, to staff these these facilities. Well, we know parents aren't going to put their children in a space that's not quality. So yes, we need space, but we also need a quality space. I mean, parents need to know that their children are in a good curriculum. They, know, they need to know they're with trained, qualified ECE educators, and they need to know that government is regulating this. 
So the investment has to be about building that capacity, not one-off. We know that one-off short-term investments with tax breaks and stuff like that don't last. There's no capacity there. There's no infrastructure built in. There's no, you know, there's no um, uh, uh, linkage with the K-12 system. And after that initial money is spent, there's nothing left. If, that, those, if those dollars are spent to build capacity and build infrastructure, which will last long after the dollars dry up, that's what's needed, strategic thinking over the long term. And we're at the point, aren't we, Doctor, where we can't just say, you know, let, let's try this and see if it works. Uh, it has worked in other jurisdictions. Uh, it, it's kind of a patchwork that we have here in Canada, as we've talked about. Uh, but the data is out, and the data indicates that the children that are in this environment uh, develop better language skills, better behavioral and, and social skills, uh, better educational skills, and even it seems to elevate even those that in low socioeconomic status uh, to improve themselves. I mean, it's, it's a win-win-win situation all the way down the line well i came to early child education late in life i'm a late convert and i spent you know 40 years at the forefront of special education in this province pushing for early identification pushing for early intervention seeing the numbers not change seeing our inability to impact that system and i only became involved with the early years when i became involved with the margaret and wallace mccain family foundation and i became exposed to the to the plethora of research that exists across the world that speaks to how this can be done. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to listen to the research and do what the evidence says is effective. Well, and you, you referenced the UK situation, and I've seen some of the data from there. Uh, Scandinavian countries are, are in the same boat. Uh, they believe in this. They invest heavily in this, uh, and and they can see the results. We've talked about the, you know the indications of, of of better socioeconomic skills, but also the let's talk about the education element to this as well, and those who may develop uh, learning disabilities, and and uh, the, the fact that the children who go through this, the early childhood education, the numbers I've seen on this doctor indicates that they are three times more likely uh, to require special support for behavior if they don't go through this so there's added a, a clear added benefit here to, to this program uh, to be able to help people along before they get into a critical circumstance yes and the article in the conversation references a report that's out this week by Craig Alexander at Deloitte uh, and he and I was a part of that we looked at the special education budgets across the country in a representative sample, and we discovered that the provinces are spending somewhere between $2,000 and $2,500 per student enrolled in the K-12 system on spec ed budgets. The data indicates that we can reduce those numbers by 40 to 55%, even if, we, if that's an overestimate, and we can reduce those budgets by 20% or 30%. That's millions and millions of dollars saved that can be reinvested more proactively and strategically. How does this affect the student down the line? Let's let's talk about that. I mean, to develop these skills at this early age. I mean, I, I had one childhood specialist a couple of years ago, and I was doing an interview such as this. Doctor said it's it's like teaching a kid to skate at two or three years of age, as opposed to twelve or thirteen. The, the the chances of improving those skills are significantly higher because they're starting earlier and developing those 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 those, those building block skills that they need for them to move forward. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good analogy, actually, yes. Um, you know, we know that you know, the learning trajectory is set early in life. We know that if children struggle, that struggle becomes a snowball. We know that we have primary uh, characteristics and secondary characteristics of many uh, areas of exceptionality. You know, the initial struggle that 
prevented them from reading or that caused their behavior to be dysregulated. But then they develop secondary characteristics, the eroded self-esteem, the shame, the, the embarrassment, the lack of hopelessness, the belief that they're dumb and they can't do it. That lasts a lifetime, and that's almost impossible to repair if, if it's allowed to, to set root. Uh, uh, and and you know, that's part of the reason why we have to be proactive in our investments. Are, are politicians getting this? You referenced the, uh, well, we talked about the Ontario budget from last week and the federal budget, which is coming up in a couple of weeks now. And I know that uh, Finance Minister Freeland has talked about this program. Uh, governments have talked about it for a long time. Uh, my problem for, for the years that I've been observing and following politics, uh, Doctor, is simply that governments tend not to think long term. They, they, they Initial investments for two or three years, usually in five-year cycles because that's when they get reelected. Uh, but we need a government that's going to say, look, at, we're in this for the long haul. This is not a four or five year project uh this is this is going to be the way things are in canada for for here on in and for the foreseeable future are, are we at that point now where they understand that i think a lot of things are aligning very quickly uh to realize that you know, you know the realization that the access to child care has been so disruptive to economies, to communities, to families that alone is a stark realization for government this government's paying the price for that Government's paying, you know, the, the loss of, of taxes and, and income uh, and disrupted economy. So I think government is finally recognizing that there's legitimacy to this. And once they start looking at the research, as I did 10 years ago, you're quickly overwhelmed by how much evidence there is to support this argument. And you're right, governments have to think longer than the five-year election cycle. That's why researchers are pushing this out. That's why you see a lot of community groups and advocacy groups pushing this out. And, and that's why I have hope for this task force that Krista Friedland has, has established. That's independent of government, designed to inform government. Government has to think long term. We do that with our, with, you know, with our uh, business planning and we do it with our environment and healthcare or stuff. We think longer term there, but we have to start thinking long term in, um, in the early years as well. I, I know we're just about out of time, but I want to finish off with that UK example again, because as you say, it's been going on there for quite some time, and they have a, a large body of data there that we can reference here. Uh, and it's worth noting here, for those who may be of different political bents here, uh, that uh, the last three governments, of course, uh, in, in, in the UK have been conservative governments, you know, Boris Johnson right now, Elizabeth May, and, and David Cameron before that. Uh, all of them conservative, all of them small C conservative, quote unquote, fiscal responsibility. They do not touch this program. Never has there been a discussion to say, let's cut back on this, because they understand uh, how important it is to, to the long-term benefit to the country. Uh, so, uh, you know, get over your political philosophies here and understand that this is for the greater good. And I, I think we've, we've overcome a large hurdle if we can do that in this country. You said that better than I can say, Bill, you're absolutely right. I mean, these governments don't want to touch something that's working. They don't want to disrupt something that's fluid and smooth. I mean, when we brought in full-day kindergarten here in Newfoundland four years ago, five years ago, there was a huge outcry against it. People were dead set against it. Mm -hmm. And I was a strong advocate for it, and I was paying the price. If I went to a, a party or a cocktail party, I had to defend my support of full-day kindergarten. And then they brought it in in September, and the day after that, everyone loved it. There was no turning back. And we see that across the land. We see that once these programs are in place, people can't conceptualize not having them there if they see the benefits. 
Well, here's hoping that uh, that they get the message in Ottawa in time for the budget uh, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, and and if they don't, uh, I'm just going to send them to the webpage, theconversation.com, and uh, they can read your piece there. Doctor, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the great work you've done on this t- particular topic, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Dr. David Philpott, of course, a retired professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland, a research associate at the Atkins Center at the uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, the Premier and a number of his ministers uh, met down in Niagara Falls, right by the falls, in fact, and uh, finally made a much-needed announcement and very welcome announcement about uh, tourism. Uh, he announced $200 million aimed at helping that sector. You can be sure our government will always be there to support and protect our vital tourism industry. In our 2021 budget, Ontario's Action Plan, we made a commitment to protect people's health and protect jobs. To help us achieve those goals, we're investing $200 million to support our tourism industry, to see them through this difficult time. This includes $100 million for a new Ontario Tourism and Hospitality Small Business Support Grant and $100 million for a new one-time recovery program. Uh, as I said at the beginning, this much needed to be sure, but is it enough, and is there a strategy in place here that's actually going to help this industry? Chris Bloor is the Vice President of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. We've talked about the impact that uh, so many different businesses uh, have gone through because of the, the, the lockdowns that have gone on and off. Uh, and, and I would argue that uh, probably nobody has suffered more than the tourism industry. I mean, your industry essentially, Chris, has been shut down because of this, because of lockdowns, border clo- closings and things of that nature. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Bill. It's been a terrible 12 months for the tourism industry in, in Ontario and across Canada as a whole. Uh, many of our successful uh, members who have operated very successful and profitable businesses have effectively been closed down because of COVID-19. Uh, and even uh, when we have been able to reopen, there's been strict restrictions on capacity limits and operations. So uh, despite some positive moments in the last 12 months, it's, it's largely been a, a terrible time for our members. And uh, unfortunately, with COVID cases still on the rise, we know that it's going to be a difficult time to come still. Uh, I mean, it's one thing for the restaurants to open, you know, after a lockdown and say, okay, you can open, but only half capacity. Uh, but how do you do that for, for some of the facilities, you know, that people want to go and visit, especially now that the weather's warming up again? Uh, it, it's, it's somewhat problematic. Plus the fact that, you know, I, I guess the, the dagger in the heart here, Chris, is they're also saying, hey, don't travel any bit, don't go anywhere. Uh, even if, you know, if the lockdown is over, don't go anywhere. Well, that's, that's, that's really problematic for, for your industry, isn't it? You're absolutely right, Berlin. You know, I can tell you that having spoken to many of our large operators across the province, many of them have already got in place their plans to reopen, uh, and they've spent millions of dollars uh, for PPE and for safety measures. So I would say many of our operators are ready to go. But as you say, currently at the moment, there are many restrictions across the province uh, in terms of traveling uh, the public health unit and the, the color-coded framework that we're in. So obviously at the moment, the main focus is to make sure that we beat COVID-19 and that we can have a, a successful season as possible. Our operators have sacrificed an incredible, incredible amount over the last 12 months uh, to ensure Ontarians' health is put first. Um, we're just hopeful that uh, sooner rather than later they'll be able to reopen and start bringing in those revenues that they've not been able to for the last 12 months. 
Chris, you get the sense sometimes that this is an industry that uh, a lot of Ontarians maybe don't miss until it's gone. Uh, you know, we kind of took it for granted over the years uh, that it was just going to be there for us all the time, and, and maybe uh, there wasn't a, 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 a good enough understanding of, of just how important it is to the Ontario economy. I think that's a really good point, Bill, but I think that's the same for many things, you know, some yeah. of the things that perhaps uh, we've all taken for granted over the last 12 months and reassessed on, on what we, we do and do enjoy or what we don't and don't miss. But the tourism industry has always been an integral part of Ontario's economy. You know, we employed well over 200, uh, over 400,000 people in the province, 200,000 businesses with $36 billion in economic activity. We've always been a big player. I think just perhaps uh, sometimes we've been seen, seen as a, a nice added extra to the economy, but one of the most really uh, pleasing things of the uh, budget in the last week or so was to see how uh, Minister Beth and Farvey and the Premier put tourism front and centre of our economic recovery, and nothing will say open for business uh, in Ontario than seeing our uh, tourism industry and our visitor economy bouncing back, hopefully, sooner rather than later. Because I, I think we have to look at this in a more wholesome picture here. Uh, you know, when we talk about tourism, I mean, people may think of attractions. You know, the, we're not just talking about things that are going on in Niagara Falls or, you know, Canada's Wonderland or something. It's the hotel business. It's the hospitality yep. business. I mean, they're all, all intricately tied together, aren't they? You're absolutely right, Bill, and just part of this process of trying to bring all of those different players and stakeholders together has been one of the most challenging aspects of the last 12 months, you know, with competing interests. But tourism is something that is in every part of our province, um, in the big downtown urban areas, but also in our small local and regional economies. You know, tourism has often replaced uh, old, uh, you know, industries like manufacturing that have left these shores. And, and it's just a huge part of uh, local economies, uh, job retention uh, and economic activity. And so, um, you know, moving forward, we just need to make sure that there is a province-wide uh, solution to this, to this moving forward because we can't just concentrate on the big cities and the urban areas. We have to make sure that our regional and local economies, uh, which have really impressive niche markets, amazing culinary experiences, indigenous experiences, you know, we have an incredible world-class tourism offer in every corner of our province. And, you know, we're really encouraging Ontarians when restrictions are limited to get out into their communities and support those small businesses uh, when we're allowed to. Well, because those are things that we used to do just as a matter of course, whether it's going to a farmer's market in another community and there's some wonderful ones there or craft shows. I mean, on and on it goes, the long list of things. And I guess what's unique about your industry, Chris, is that uh, there are different levels. I mean, you know, we talked about the hotel aspect of this. I mean, some of the larger chains are certainly suffering about this, but, I mean, they, they can maybe withstand that just simply because of the enormity of, of, of their enterprise. But I, I, I'm concerned about the small operators, you know, the, the people that are running a smaller motel or, you know, a, a restaurant or something like this in, in places like Niagara Falls and, and Hamilton and London, by the way, are, are, you know, still very, very much dependent upon tourism dollars for certain times of the year Absolutely. to come in and, and, and take part of that. And, and to have it shut off like this is, uh, well, there's an employment problem, but I think there's also an attitudinal problem. I mean, you know, we need tourism, not just for the financial end of this, but I, I think it's one of those things where we actually get some relief from, from what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And God knows we need relief now because of what we've gone on with this pandemic. Absolutely right, Bill. And, you know, we, we've, mental health has come to the forefront in our, in our minds and conversations over the last 12 months. That ability to get out, to enjoy ourselves, to spend time with friends and family. And so tourism is going to be an integral part of that moving forward, you know, especially as we, as, as we hopefully move into the summer and are, are able to enjoy a, a proper season. 
Um, but you're absolutely right. The framework of our tourism industry just isn't big businesses and, and medium-sized uh, businesses. It's, it, it's, it's a collaboration of small family-run organizations like the motels and the lodges uh, and the tour operators that you've mentioned there. And one of the things that we're obviously pleased with in the last budget last week was the introduction of the Tourism and Hospitality Grant. But we're really clear at Tyre we need that funding to continue uh, for a prolonged period. You know, we're, uh, one grant, one-off uh, $20,000 isn't going to be the answer to the solution. And if we want this framework of small businesses to be there in Niagara, Hamilton, London, and, and some of our uh, more regional areas, we need to support them through this period now. Because the biggest issue facing tourism at the moment is solvency. You know, mm. we're not in the situation where we were 12 months ago where people had money set aside uh, to help them get through this period. Many people have exhausted their reserves. Uh, they've taken on large amounts of debt so that they can keep their staff on and keep their premises uh, in the best condition that they can be. So solvency really is going to be Tayo's focus as we hopefully get to a situation where we can open up. And to that point, uh, let's talk a little bit about, as you mentioned, the government programs. Because uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm so pleased to see that the government has done here is they've shifted uh, in the initial parts of the pandemic a year ago in that first wave uh, to say, okay, we can make interest-free loans available or, you know, rent subsidies, etc. Uh, and I guess in the short term, that sounds like a really good idea, but all it really did was increase the debt for a lot of these small operators. Uh, and they switched that, thankfully, to, to grant programs right now, uh, which are so needed right now to keep people on staff, to keep people employed in situations like this, and to keep their head above water. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a welcome relief, I think, and, and some Something that a lot of the small operators that you and I just talked about are going to benefit. Uh, the fund is limited to businesses that have a minimum 20% revenue decline and uh, less than 100 employees. So, I mean, it, it's really targeting those small businesses that you mentioned, Chris. It is, Bill, and it's much needed. Um, you know, you're absolutely right to identify that our businesses can't take on more debts. And, and as welcome as some of those loan programs have been, both from the, largely from the federal government, at some stage you have to provide uh, direct support and forgivable support and we're glad that the government's done that you know these businesses are going to be the businesses that uh, drive back uh, that economic recovery and, and bring the provincial taxes quite frankly back into Queen's Park um, you know we provided five billion dollars uh, a, a year uh, uh, pre-2020 in COVID and in March and so uh, if we want that money to flow back into into Queen's Park and help pay back the debts that we're having to incur to defeat COVID-19 in the last year then we need those tourism businesses businesses up and running. We need them being able to open. We need them uh, being able to open at the biggest capacity that they're able to do so. So it's great. You're absolutely right. Um, but, you know, we did, we're really grateful for the grant that was introduced in the budget last week. But, we, you know, we're already working on trying to convince the government perhaps to have an extra round of support, especially if restrictions are going to be in place uh, for, for, for the foreseeable future. Chris, what's uh, the mood of, of your membership right now? Are they hopeful? Do, do they see the light at the end of the tunnel here? I think our members are confident that when restrictions are lifted, they'll be able to get back into business and they'll be able to bring those revenues that their businesses have year on year been able to bring into, uh, bring into their local economies and, uh, and to their communities. I think there's frustration, obviously, with the perhaps slow rollout of the vaccination compared to other countries. And some other countries do have more detailed critical paths to the reopening. But, you know, we're a resilient bunch in the tourism industry, Bill. Uh, we're, we're, we're an innovative bunch. And, you know, I, I could list uh, some of the incredible uh, online experiences that many of our members have produced and some of the drive-by uh, experiences that, you know, have kept many of us going through that innovation. But 
you know, they're hopeful, they're confident that they that if they're given the tools to reopen, even if it's partially at the beginning, that they can bring revenues back into their to their businesses and and, and get on a sure footing again. They just want to, uh, you know, they've sacrificed a lot over the last 12 months, Bill. Uh, they've played their part in trying to defeat COVID-19. Uh, they just they're just anxious to be able to get uh, open again, uh, bring in those revenues, and start employing local people again. Because I can tell you, the difficult conversations that I've had with uh, small business owners who, you know, have had to let people go because they've had no revenues. They want those people back. They want to start trading again, uh, and they're excited to do so. It's just like I think, like many of us, we're, you know. 12 months is a long time that we've had to deal with COVID-19 and we're just really anxious to finish the job off and let's get back to normal life again. I mean, it's all relative. We understand that. And this is a, a, a global problem, not just a, an Ontario problem. I mean, you know, my wife and I are big fans of live theater. And of course, that, that's basically been shut down for the last year. And we're aching to do that. Yeah. I, I get the sense a lot of consumers are just saying, please give me the go. And, and we're, we're there. We're going to go to these facilities. and We're going to go to these attractions again and start doing that. And that, that's encouraging. But I guess uh, in a, in a, we've got a minute or two left here. And i got to address the elephant in the room here, Chris. Uh, how important is it getting the border open to, to the recovery? Oh, it's it's absolutely integral, Bill. Uh, we need that that border reopened with the United States, particularly northern Ontario tourism and businesses uh, that have up to 95% of their business coming from the United States. Uh, many Americans own uh, uh, lodges and, uh, mm-hmm. and operations in northern Ontario too. So it's absolutely integral. Um, we're working with our, inter- our national colleagues at TIAC to keep that conversation going with both the federal health minister uh, and, 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 and the foreign minister to, to try and stay in the loop of what they're thinking of when they think it might be safe to do so and when uh, they feel that we can start doing that again. But you're absolutely right. International travel was booming uh, in Canada. We had 22.1 million visitors in the year before uh, COVID hit. Um, It's driven the exponential growth of tourism in Canada and Ontario. And so moving forward, it's absolutely vital that we get that border open. However, Ontarians can play their part this summer, Bill, and hopefully when restrictions are uh, are, are lifted, uh, if we can funnel some of that money that used to go on international trips and international vacations into Ontario uh, and within Canada ourselves further afield, we'll be able to re- uh, bring back over 150,000 jobs and over 18 billion in economic activity. And that could be the, 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 the huge boost in the arm uh, for the industry that could ensure that the following year when those borders are open, uh, the tourism industry looks like it did before uh, COVID-19. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you're look, thinking about what to do this summer or perhaps later in the year, look local, support your local industry, uh, and, and, and you'll certainly have a wonderful experience i'm sure well exactly and hey because uh, I, I i know there are an awful lot of americans that are just dying to get back onto the side of the border and this is not just the niagara yeah. falls you know niagara region niagara parks thing uh as you mentioned it's right across ontario an awful lot of americans have invested uh land and, and businesses here on the side of the border and they can't get across the border to enjoy them anymore so uh you know if they think it's a great place we as ontarians should understand just how great it is here too and start spending our tourism dollars here uh, i hope this is a good first step in that recovery and and i like to think that we're close to that light at the end of the tunnel, Chris, and hopefully it's going to come sooner than later. Uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us here today, and uh, and to your membership, please tell them that we're ready, willing, and able uh, to be part of the recovery. All we need is the uh, the get-go from the, the provincial government, and I hope that's going to happen soon. Thanks, Bill. We really appreciate it. Take care. Good luck talking with you. Chris Bluer, who is the Vice President of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, uh, with some good news from the uh, provincial government. But as Chris said, it's uh, it's not uh, the panacea. It's not going to solve all the problems. And we, as consumers, have a role to play there, too, of course. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.